Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Horton. I'm here with Scotty Sample. Uh, Scotty's the owner of My Time Recovery, and I've uh, known Scotty for a couple of years now. Scotty, thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, um, this is kind of a, a, a special month in a lot of ways. One is special because this is uh, Zach's birthday month. In fact, uh, Zach's turning 21. We're having a big uh, birthday party for him later this month uh, for the recovery community. Uh, and so that's, you know, part of, uh, what we do, uh, with the foundation. So that should be a, that should be a great, that should be a great time and a great event. Uh, but in, in, in celebrating, uh, Zach's life, I really, really wanted to, um, uh, uh, get you here to, to talk about Zach. I know the last, the last year of his life, you probably had more interaction with him and saw him. I know you certainly saw him more than I did. Because uh, he was in your facilities almost uh, every day, you know, throughout patient and the, through private hospitalization and all that uh, that took place. And uh, I know that in a, in a lot of ways, you and um, uh, Zach developed a real uh, strong bond. Uh, and uh, I, I found it interesting in the different ways that he would talk about you, Scotty, when he was uh, when he was frustrated or angry, how he would talk about you, and then. But when he needed help with something or when he was ready for help, how you were the first one that he would reach out to. So I know that you guys had something real special uh, that was going on. So anyway, so today that's kind of what I want, I want this to be about is, is I want, I'd love for you to, to tell our audience about, about Zach, about your relationship with him. And then, uh, yeah, let's just take it from there. Uh, so please, or, and, and tell us a little bit, some of our audience may not know you at all. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into your relationship with Zach. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty easy for me to describe my relationship with Zach because when I was, it's almost pretty identical. My behaviors personally, when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And so my relationship with Zach was like having a relationship with myself when when I was his age. And so there were so many different conversations that I had with him that I could really relate to him 100%. And so for me personally, when I was 18, 19 years old, I would go to treatment. I would almost be all the staff's, you know, favorite because sure. I was so young, um, I looked young. I was really immature, but had a you know a big heart. But my behaviors were kind of uh, they didn't match, you know my like my heart. Sure, and, and it was kind of like a uncontrollable thing for me when I was eighteen, nineteen. It was the oxycontin and the, the the drugs like that is pretty similar to the fentanyl nowadays. And it's almost like it, it has such a grip on you. You really lose a lot of choice of your actions, your manipulations, the, the things you say. And so I think it takes a special type of person to be able to tolerate that and look past it. 
And I certainly had certain people that never gave up on me. Maybe I got kicked out of a bunch of programs, but they, that was almost cause like they had to. Right. But they didn't look at me. They didn't like judge me and they never gave up on me. And so that was kind of like my relationship with Zach. Like it was pretty evident. Hey, I could see this sweet kid. Right. And he wants it, but you have a drug like fentanyl or for me, Oxycontin that makes your decision-making and has such grips on you that it's like, Hey, there's Zach. And then there's Zach when he's struggling and they're two different people. For me personally, it was easy to only see Zach. And a lot of it, was because when he's on his sobriety journey, I got to witness a lot of days where I got to see the real Zach, where others might not have had that experience. And so that's why I always sharing with right. you to be able to, you know, share with you the the good times that we got right, to spend right. with him. Right. And, and I think um, as... Right after Zach's uh, passing, I got to share a lot with people that were staff right at uh, at my time. And uh, they all had just incredible funny stories and, and uh, again, things that really spoke to the soft part of his heart that I hadn't got to see the last, you know, the last nine months of his life, right? But you guys got to. So that was... Uh, that was very comforting um, yeah, and, for me and, to see. I mean, and, that, and that's just the truth, you know, when, uh, you know, in, in recovery, things could happen and change so fast, not just in a downward spiral, but on your progression, the way you're, you know, you build friendships, you maybe, you know, gain spirituality, positive things that happen in your life, relationships, men with your family, you have positive impact on others. And so it's common when someone like, you know, like a Zach starts progressing in a positive way, their impact is so big and so deep. And I think someone like Zach and his young, how young he was and um, the lives he affected in just a short period of time. And the reality is like, there's people that live to be 90 and don't affect that many people. Yeah. And so, so, so Scotty, w w one of the things that I struggled with and, and I, you're kind of speaking to it now is <clears throat> I struggled with, with the fact you talked about when he was on his sobriety journey, um, the, the great impact that he had and the wonderful person that, you know, that you could see that he was, during that same journey, I was stuck in a mindset that only focused on his latest relapse. And then that mindset would then almost have me looking forward to thinking, well, yeah, yeah, this is great that he's doing well now until the next time. I mean, I was, I was kind of stuck. I was kind of stuck there to just speak to that. And if you can, I mean, reflect back about, about what Zach looked like when he was, because again, I didn't see those, you know, those thirty to forty-four days in between a relapse, and then then I would hear that you know that he went back out for a day, he relapsed for a day, and then I would get all beside myself, and I had nothing but negativity flowing in my head based on that, based on that one instance, as opposed to taking in the full breadth of of his success, 
right of what was happening? I mean, uh, so opioids are such a physical addicting when you're withdrawing. It's so painful. It's so dark. Um, and so when you get through like a detox or you start stacking sober days, you feel so like good that you're not in pain. You might have some down days, but like when you're happy, you're really happy. You start having laughs like you've never had before. And something that, uh, like with, with, with Zach is that his smile got bigger. His, he, he was happy. The reality of, for me personally, with the addiction, I just spoke at a funeral for one of my uh, good friends that helped me get sober. And sometimes I believe, like, you could literally do everything that any doctor, therapist, any treatment center recommends and do it perfectly. But at the end of the day, it's a terminal disease, in my opinion, and it doesn't mean that you're going to make it. You could have stage, you know, cancer. You could do all the chemo, everything, but that doesn't mean you're going to make it. Right. And so sometimes if you, if you do get to the point where you believe this is a disease, there isn't always a, a cure, and it's a hard thing to accept. So any day someone gets sober and has peace and happiness, it's a, it's a, it's a win. And we got to see a lot of like really powerful, impactful, happy days for Zach that, you know, that it's like magnify his whole life and just, you know, 19 years. Mm. And so it was a pretty cool experience to, witness the darkness and then the light yeah and so the, the the thing i always knowing a lot of people have passed it's not and i think i've told you before i don't always look at it like hey they they might have passed away they were any worse of a you know they were using any more any more like often it's just the drugs are so powerful nowadays you don't you don't know what's going to happen. Talk about to talk about that a little bit, Scotty. When you say the drugs are more powerful, because you know I know a little bit about your story, and again, you were, you know, oxy was a big thing. That's how Zach started, and then progressed to opana, and then you know heroin, and then you know, you know he had some fentanyl seeking behavior. Well, what are what are the differences that you see in drug usage? when you were in high school and the way it affects young people to today? So I, I went to 12 detoxes, 12 treatment centers, um, Oxycontin, heroin, IV. I used to inject it in my neck and heroin. I never had overdose. Not, not even once. And so that's not always the case, but before when you did, you know, heroin or when that was kind of, it was Oxycontin was my era. Then we all went to heroin. And so the only people that were really overdosing that you would like know about or like, like the epidemic now was, you know, IV, you know, heroin users or someone that took a ton of pills. Fentanyl. 
they're not they're not injecting it you know they're snorting it smoking it and so it's a whole different you know ball game and so it's so powerful i mean i have i know tons of people that i don't even know if they've crossed that line into full-blown addiction but they do it and then they're you know overdosing and so it's like when i was a kid you know you would hear at the schools oh you don't know what's in those drugs but today and it was like come on they made it seem like you're gonna overdose if you smoked weed right today like that's the case. You well, yeah, know? yeah. Well, exactly. And I remember. I mean, and, and we're from different generations for sure. <clears throat> but, but you know, I, I remember the '80s with the you know just say no campaign, and that was the whole thing. It's like you know, if you smoke marijuana, you're going to become a heroin addict, and you're you're going yeah. to jail tomorrow, and, and you're going <laughs> to yeah, and, and you don't know what's going to you know you don't know what you're taking, and and there was all these scare tactics, and every kid out there just said that, ah, but it's bullshit because. I know somebody else who just, you know, hey, we just used last weekend. Everything was fine. So they stopped believing what the pitch was. The the difference today that I see is that so many, uh, I don't know of a kid. I know that there's not a kid at Clovis North that parties that doesn't know someone who's OD'd. Because I can name four that have OD'd in the last in the last two years, my, my son being one of them. So so now everyone that's in that in that party community they know someone who's who's went now. What's what's interesting is they still continue to use, right? So I mean, I mean, I can speculate. It's you know, their young minds are still teenagers, or minds aren't fully developed, you know. But there does seem to be a difference in the in the in the purity levels and in the in the in the levels of the drugs that are that are available today versus what was available. You know, certainly 30 or 40 years ago, but I'm sure even 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah, and it's, <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of hard to, like, comprehend um, how so many young people are, you know, doing the fentanyl. I mean, I get it. I was doing Oxycontin. I know that the the fentanyl is extremely addicting, and it's a lot harder to get off of than the heroin. And so the, it's like the, the, the perfect storm of a narcotic where it almost feels like a, a terrorist attack on the community, not just like a drug that's going around. Right, right. And it's a hard thing to treat, you know, because it's, it's, it's not like any drug that we've seen before where it's, it's easier to get somebody, it's easier to get someone that's been doing heroin for 20 years every day off than a 19 year old that's been doing fentanyl for a year. Hmm. And my experience, you know, uh, detoxing somebody off of that longer. It seems like it's a longer half life. It's more psychological, more physical, you know? So it's, um, I don't think there's like any like right answer. I just know that a lot of facilities, medical professionals, people just in the recovery community are still kind of stumped on the the best way to treat a young fentanyl, someone struggling with fentanyl addiction. Right. You you know, uh, just in the last month, I attended um, 
Mobilize Recovery, which was a, it was a conference that was held in Las Vegas, and I attended the online portion of it over a weekend and got to hear a bunch of speakers talking about new grassroots levels. And that's one of the things that they talked about is how, you know, treatment of how we treated an alcoholic or a cocaine user 20 years ago doesn't necessarily match what the, the, the kind of treatment that's going to be effective for an opioid user. Uh, and I think it, for those of us who, who, who haven't, who haven't suffered with substance use disorder or addiction, we, we just think of an addict as an addict as an addict. And a cocaine addict and a meth addict and an opioid addict, they're just all the same. You know, these are decisions they make if they just stop using everything and be fine, right? I mean, that's, that's a real, real simplified response to how, to how many people still, still think. But, but what we're seeing is it's different. And, I, you know, I like to think <clears throat> a lot of the stuff that I heard when I, you know, when I first started going to support groups is that, you know, my loved one just needed to hit bottom. And then, you know, that's when they would have to make the decision to turn around. Well, the, you know, the challenge I see with that is, you know, and, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, an alcoholic hitting bottom might be him losing his job, uh, getting a divorce, ending up in jail, right? But when you have uh, an opioid addict hitting bottom, it's, it's death, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no bouncing back from that. There's no opportunity for them to, uh, say, you know, be able to make a good decision or a better decision at at that point. Zach had OD'd the day before he died, and was at the hospital, and they released him. He was 18, and he demanded to be released, and they released him, and he went and and uh, and did it again. So there was no. I mean, he had already died once, and someone found him, and they brought him back to life. And they died again, so that bottom wasn't even enough there. So, one of the things that they discussed at at, at the Mobilized Recovery uh, Retreat was th- they discussed how how treatments may be looking different now. Um, I know thirty years ago, I worked in I worked in a, a a treatment facility for adolescents, and I know things are a whole lot different now than they were then. Where I, I don't even understand. Man, the things that I heard at this seminar were incredible. You know that they were doing just the different thoughts. I know you went to uh, you went down to Palm Springs last week or a couple weeks ago, and uh, there was a, a similar convention there. Is there is there anything that was uh, eye opening to you about new about new treatment modalities on the horizon, or or something you want to speak to? Well, I just golfed the whole time. I didn't go to the. <laughs> I didn't go to the convention. Um, so anytime I speak on this stuff, I speak as not someone that works in treatment or in the treatment industry. You know, it's because uh, I have to separate my personal beliefs and how I do things, you know, kind of from, you know, with, uh, with treatment. I kind of leave that to like the doctors and the clinicians to kind of anything that is uh has to do with like current modalities and you know things that are changing in addiction medicine and and so i i know that a lot of my personal beliefs have to kind of like in a way stay stay out of it i do know one thing that there's no right answer or so we probably wouldn't be you know sitting here 
um, one time, sometimes I, I don't, I think like quality of life isn't always looked at with some of the medications that is used to maintain somebody, right? Like, so you could have somebody on, and this is my personal opinion, not regarding treatment. You can have someone on methadone for 10 years, but how's their quality of life? Do you, do you, right. do you, do you put that in there or is you just got somebody 10 years from not doing heroin? You know, so at some point, do you, do you, you know, look at quality of life and the, you know, statistics or, you know, anything for me, uh, it's just really hard to, to, to speak on. I'm more like, Hey, what's it going to take for a 19 year old to buy into some type of life change? Right. Like they're going to have to learn to have fun, sober, get comfortable in their own skin. So there has to be some motivating factor to like go towards something different. Some people maybe on Suboxone, they could do that. Some people maybe on Suboxone, they feel stagnant. They're not motivated. They're just existing. And then now they're doing other substances, cocaine, drinking, smoking weed, but they're not doing fentanyl. How's the quality of life? And so. Right. So, and, and for Scotty, for people listening, that don't know what Suboxone is. I'll, I'll explain what I know, and then you take yeah. it from there. So I know that when when Zach was uh, medically detoxing uh, from from his uh, severe opioid um, uh, um, condition, they used Suboxone in, over a, a seven to ten day period or something like that, and they staggered it down. So then it, his his uh, withdrawals weren't so severe. So it was a medicine similar to similar to methadone, but it was used in a short term. Some of the studies that I've heard, they've talked about for for younger opioid users uh, utilizing Suboxone as a maintenance because they don't get high the same way that they get high from from, from heroin, but using it as a as a maintenance for a year or two, especially with younger with with younger uh, addicts, because it it takes them that long for their minds to wrap themselves around. Hey, I, I don't I don't have to be high all the time. Yeah, but 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 it's it, but it's a it, it's it's a it's a it's a means to that it's a means to that end of them uh, again of them maturing enough to be able to make some better decisions about about their sobriety, and it doesn't get them high in the same way that that they were getting high with with heroin. But back to your point, if it just prolongs their use, and and then from there they go on, they continue to party with everything else and their life continues to spiral downward, then that may not be, but, but that goes back to your point. And not, not, not every answer is the same answer for every person. Yeah. And that's a hundred percent. It's a lot easier for me to, you know, comprehend when like maybe it's our doctors or, you know, they're doing that, especially with the fentanyl because there's such high risk of not just overdosing, not waking up. You know, and so I totally, it's a lot, my mindset and the has totally shifted, you know, since the, probably like the last year with the, the fentanyl overdoses and the deaths for me personally, I was, so I was on, put on Suboxone in 2004, it was kind of when they first started utilizing it. And to be able to give me it, they had me go into like a, a psych facility Right, I was like a guinea pig for Suboxone, okay. and so 
in my experience for someone like me, I would go off and on Suboxone for years. But when I was taking Suboxone, I was doing Coke, I was partying, and then I would sell my, you know, my oxys, right? Because I didn't need to take them because I had prescriptions. And so for me, it was like a crutch to, you know, then I was able to actually, I wasn't at my bottoms. I was on Suboxone, so then I could smoke weed. I could go to parties and do things. So for me, it didn't work because I would just use it as a crutch. Some people, there's had great success. So that's why for me personally, I, I do, a, I keep my opinions and I, I know I have to keep my opinions like a hundred percent out of some of how somebody else gets treatment. So because it's just different times and everybody's just so different. Right. For me, right. I couldn't handle it. Right. I would sell it. <laughs> I would, you know, and so like the, it's just you. you so, have it's to, not, so it's not for everyone. That treatment, definitely that treatment not, is not for it's, everyone. It's probably, I think, one of the most individualized decision making for any fentanyl, opioid, you know, someone that's struggling with addiction. Like it's when, when you make that decision for them. It's got to be really like personalized because if you're the type that's going to go abuse it and abuse other things, it, it just it looks different for everybody. Right. But it, I know that it saves a lot of lives. So 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 let's let's talk about that. That that seems to meld a little bit with me in a discussion um, in a discussion that uh, I had last week with um, with Austin. Austin Reed was on our show. We talked about about harm reduction. Um, so harm reduction, as it looks f- for opioid users versus tough love, because I'm 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 almost in in my experiences now. I'm seeing those two come in conflict sometimes. Whereas in in, in my mind, and again, and I all I have is you have your experience. I have a very limited experience, and that my whole experience is just what what I saw happen with Zach, right? So, you, you know, you've been able to see hundreds and thousands of other clients come through your facility. But so in, in the harm reduction modality uh, it, with, with opioid users, f- for me, the opportunity to see incremental advances for them. So, so for him, that might be, you know, he didn't use for 30 or 45 days at a time, and then he had one use as opposed to using every day for two to three years, huge advances, right? So uh, the, the harm reduction model says, you know what, as long as we're making incremental advances, that's a good thing, whatever that, whatever that looks like, because it keeps, our, it, it keeps our loved ones alive until they're able to make a, a full decision for sobriety or they're able to learn to manage whatever their, whatever their life could be in a, in a productive way. Where... I view the tough love model as saying any relapse or slip that has to be met with such with with such huge um, uh, uh, punishments, almost that that we 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 remember the tough part, but we forget the love part. So I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be that there doesn't need to be you know any any kind of a boundary set. You know that there's that that's not any part of it. But what I'm saying, it seems to be set with with a, a level of negativity. And I'm again, I'm talking about just for Zach. And in the opioid world, 
I didn't see that being positive for him. Uh, and I can almost imagine, and again, I didn't have these conversations with him because we weren't talking, but I could almost imagine him saying, you know, yeah, I know I've been doing really good for 30, 45 days, but then I slipped up, and so, you know, F it, I'm done, you know. And and now him being done means going back to opioids, going back to the, you know, scoring like he used to score, using like he used to use, even though his body, you know, had, you know, that tolerance was now, you know, done in his system. You know, different, say, perhaps from someone who's an alcoholic, you know, who they, you know, slip up and they go out and they have a bender for a night, you know, and they go out and, and throw down a 12-pack in there. You know, they're done, they're hung over the next day, and they're able to, re, you know, restructure. So, in anyway, I'm kind of rambling here. So, but 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 talk about that harm reduction thought, you know, versus a tough love opinion, how they can work, and then how they, you know, maybe where the weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's, it's just one of those things. There's no right answer. You know, there's everybody's situations, you know, completely different. You can have a family. They, you know, they try to set boundaries. They, you know, my mom's biggest fear was I, she would set these boundaries, kick me out. I go to a hotel, not wake up. Then you have all the families, right? They let their kids back in. They find them in the bedroom. And so there's just really... You know, no. As for like tough love, as family boundaries, um, there's just so many like situations that there's no right answer for. There's you know suggestions, clinical suggestions, medical suggestions, but I mean, it's just one of those things where when I'm involved, I kind of just try to you know do it from a spiritual, play it by the the person, the family dynamic type of. Uh, role to help the family process to make the best decision as for like um, boundaries, I guess is like a harm reduction. I mean, I'm the type of person that never gives up on anybody, you know, and, and for how me and so many others have got clean and sober, we were, you know, some of the worst of the worst IV, you know, meth heroin in your neck for a year. I didn't have any veins left and was able to get clean a certain way, right? And so in the medical field, you know, clinical, right? Hey, this is evidence-based how it's, okay, well, I used to shoot heroin in my neck, right? And I'm clean, so it's pretty evident. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I know somewhat what I'm talking about, right? And so, and that's for hundreds of, ever, hundreds, thousands of people, right? And so everybody's situation so different, right? Like I could explain my exact situation, what maybe worked for me. You have a doctor say, well, that's not evidence-based. Well, fuck, it's evident I got clean like this. I'm telling you. And so, I mean, everything you went to school for, here's the outcome, right? I've said IV heroin user in my neck and seven years sober. So I don't know if you need to go rewrite the book or whatever, but here's a new evidence way of, you know, someone right, succeeded. Right. So, but I didn't use any harm reduction, right? I had a bunch of people that never gave up on me, right? And so I I know what works for me. I could share my experience, what works for me. And it wasn't like any type of harm reduction. I could tell you one thing that I went to a ton of detox centers 
and I was on Suboxone off and on. I don't know. My mom says, like, hey, those detoxes, right? They kept me alive an extra month, right? Right. And the, the, maybe the Suboxone protected me from a few overdoses or kept me alive longer right. until this, what worked for me, worked for me. Right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's just one of those things, like my, my way of giving somebody the best opportunity to get clean for what I'm qualified in is like, hey, I'm going to help you create the best life, give you the best experience to get you motivated to even listen to the doctors and the therapists of what they recommend for you. So, and, and Scotty, that, that was something that really struck a chord for, for me and Lynn. When Zach came in, because that was, we were, and I know when I say we, we, we are not alone in this in this journey for, for Lynn and I, but literally when he went through his, you know, his first you know, two weeks of medical detox, we thought he was cured. I mean, how stupid is that to even assume that? Because we didn't understand the depth of the, of the disease, Right. Every time he would finish an outpatient program or he would go through, we thought he was cured, which is why we're so frustrated then when he would, you know, when he would relapse. And, and to, to see it as a journey, to understand, uh, to understand this process as, as something that, you know, that takes time. And to understand that when someone goes through 30 days of treatment in the most expensive, you know, place, uh, anywhere in the u.s or for 60 days or 90 days and then they come home to the same friends to the same home dynamics to the same family to think that there's not going to that there's not a huge potential for to revert back to old behaviors is is just silly especially when that person that went through treatment is 18 years old or 19 years old you, you know and they're they don't have the they don't have the life coping skills right to deal with problems as they come up right they come back they come back home and you know and that was zach's deal every time he you know you know he was down south that you know he come home and within two or three days he's back on the phone with his old you know with his old running buddy you know which is one of his best friends which you know where he died right and that draw is just so strong for people so to be able to create you know, to create new environments. Um, and, and I see that as being a, a real positive part of what, you know, of, of what, of what. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, I, that's what I was doing before, way before my time, right. For, for myself to get clean for my friends, you know, to be honest. So I just went to a, um, a bachelor party. It was me and five of my friends, Right. All, all of them were in their 20s. They all lived on my couch, and they all have five years or more sober, and they're all engaged or got married and have kids. Wow. We didn't go to treatment. I mean, I went to treatment. They didn't go to treatment. They came to my house. We golfed a lot, went to a lot of meetings, and there was just, like, a lot of connection and, and love, right? And so when I went to treatment, my last one, state-funded program, right? It wasn't all the top of the line you, you know you stuff didn't, you didn't have yoga and a massage every no, day no, no. The, we, we no had a lot equestrian. of you didn't get to ride any horses or play any soccer no i was past that <laughs> i would uh but there was no when i got out i didn't have a huge 
the community part to like even give me an opportunity to have some buy-in. So when you have someone like a an 18 or 19 year old, my experience for myself and, you know, like all these guys that, you know, it's pretty evident they're all sober, right? They're right, engaged, right? right? So you can't, don't tell me my couch was evidence-based. Right. Because it's evident. <laughs> like I'll show you pictures <laughs> and proof and testimonies, you know? And so was creating some type of something that's attractive for a young person to at least have some buy-in to be able to listen to maybe a professional. If I could, if I get sober, I get detox and I I don't want to hear it. Then I don't even have an opportunity. Right. Right. And so the only, the most important thing for my skill set and not just in treatment in the recovery community, my contribution was like, Hey, how can I help other young people be like, Hey, this is what the cool kids are doing. So it could allow the people that went to school a long time to have an opportunity to talk to us. And that doesn't always mean it's going to hundred percent work, but I right. definitely think it gives someone a better opportunity to talk to the people that treat us from a medical standpoint. Cause I know that was my experience for myself. I would go to these treatment centers this sucks. This is whack. What am I going to do afterwards? Great, doc. Thanks. You take this. Okay, cool. But then I'd come right back, and I didn't have any type of shot. Because what am I going to do at 19 years old? You know, I remember being in treatment down there, like in treatment programs, 18, 19. I get out, being sober living. I go to be going to movies by myself, right? Because it was like there wasn't this huge uh, motivating factor to make this life change. And so for someone like Zach, I saw him almost get like all the way connected and invested. It's just, it's not a hundred percent. It's going to, it's going to work. It's a, it's a battle, you know? And the thing is another kid could do the exact same thing. They don't overdose because of the, the potency of the fentanyl. And they stay sober and they got connected enough and they they, yeah. they live. And so that's what I'm always saying, that the drugs are just so much more powerful. Not everybody has as, uh, an opportunity to walk through that bottom. Yeah. Like when, so when family's like, oh, I just, we got to let them hit their bottom. Well, today the bottoms look a lot different because your chances of not waking up at that bottom are a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I totally understand the the harm reduction, the different like philosophies of what to do. And I wish there was a more clear, right. 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 Answer. I hear all the statistics and it's like, well, 40% of statistics are false. (laughs) You know, like, like, like where the, you know, you know, so it's hard for me to, well, I I think what I'm gleaning from, from your conversation, Scotty, and what you're saying is that, and, and, you know, um, when your mom was in here a few weeks ago and we talked and she had said some of the same words that, that there is not, there's not one way it's, it's not a one, one, one treatment fits all. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are some things, but there are some things that we, that we know that are helpful. Right. 
that, uh, along that path. And so, and thank you for sharing some of that with us today. It, Scotty, as, as we close and we wind down, I, I'd, I'd love to, if there's a, um, if, if there's a, a parent that's listening today that thinks that there may be a challenge with one of their children, um, what, what advice would you give them in, in this, in this moment today? I think uh, not reaching out to like necessarily like the, it's not just the right people. You're reaching out to like the right heart. Right. And so there's, when you reach out and you're going to look for help for your children, it doesn't have to be a treatment center. It doesn't have to be, you know, a certain one, but I think the most important thing is to find somebody with a heart enough. That's not going to like give up on them and isn't gonna uh, is gonna help you make decisions, and they're gonna do it from the the heart, right? Because it's for me, I used to, and I'm sure you talked to my mom. A lot of people used to spit me out, right? They would rip up my mom's check, just get them out of here, you know. And so to have a team of people, whether it's church, treatment center, you, anybody that is gonna have this type of heart, where you know that they're helping you make the best decision and there's a trust, right? And so you have to find people that you're going to trust. They're going to give you feedback and tell you what to do, but you're going to respect enough to actually follow through and do it. Sure. Because a lot of families will reach out, but they're not quite ready to do what you recommend. Right. And so, and there's a still a lot of denial, right? Oh, especially a lot at, that, of families, at that point. Yeah. The families feel like there's really, like, once someone comes clean about, like, so say it's the stigma, there isn't no stigma. Right. The families think there's a more of a stigma than really, the reality there is. Right. Right? I When I finally said I had a, a, a year sober on Facebook, it was the most likes I probably had combined within five years. Right. So if there was a stigma like people think there is, then they're, you know, so the stigma is people not coming out about it. That's I right. feel like, or right. families t- turning the, the, their head. Sure. And so well, we don't, we don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe it. It, it for a myriad of different reasons, but, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to accept it. Even in the, in the face of undeniable, evidence it's hard for us to accept it we'll make an excuse for it right yeah or, or we'll stop and and that's and again i think that's 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 incredible advice uh, scotty is just to to reach out to someone that you can trust and i know that uh, I, I know that there are a lot of facilities that are like that there are there are uh groups in in uh, uh narnon and alanon uh you know that are in these the, what I can say about the recovery community is that for the most part, it is so non-judgmental. And, and I think that's one of the fears when you don't understand is, and that's part of that stigma is that we fear we're going to be judged, judged as bad parents, judged as bad families, judged as evil people inside of that community that, that almost doesn't happen. Right. No. And so that's one of the, that's one of the wonderful things. And so, uh, I would join you, Scotty, in saying that to 
families, if someone is is listening to this today and you have a and 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 you have a feeling that something like this you know may be growing in your family and 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 you want to get some more information about it, please don't hesitate to reach out to uh, on on our the Zachary Horton Foundation dot org. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of options there. Uh, facilities that are there. There's some reading materials, movies to watch. You can also email or uh, or call us uh, direct, directly uh, here at the foundation as well. Uh, Scotty, I want to thank you for coming in, for sharing some thoughts about Zach and for talking with us today. Hopefully we can get you back uh, again uh, uh, sometime and uh, we can go a little deeper. Into yeah, everything. no, I appreciate it. It's tough coming on to these because I, I try to, I'm really not talking as a, a treatment center owner because a lot of my experience and beliefs might be a little bit different sometimes. So yeah, I hope people like, if I was to tell somebody to reach out on here, I wouldn't be trying to tell them to reach out to me right, for treatment, right. For my treatment center. It's just that like, that's how I got sober was like helping people for right. the right, you know, for fun and for free, not for a treatment center. Right. Right. No, so no, we, if there was anybody, that. I would almost want to make a commitment that I would do it <clears throat> from the heart and not to try to get them into. I understand. Like a marketing. Right. You know? no, no, so no, no. I, I appreciate no, yeah. you having, having me here and being yeah. on this. That's it. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'd encourage you to reach out to someone today. Let them know that, uh, let them know that you love them. This is Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.